Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Punk Rock HR. One of the weirder stories to emerge from COVID-19 is that there's a run on bacon. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. Like, that doesn't sound right to me. How is it that we might have a bacon shortage? So I reached out to my friend, Jesse McCoy, who's got a job straight out of the movie Contagion. He is an expert in food and animal health. He keeps animals from getting sick so that we don't get sick. And it turns out that animals aren't really the problem. Right now, you and I are going out. We're not washing our hands. We're not wearing masks. And we're spreading COVID-19 to individuals who work in the meat industry. And then when they go to work, they're getting their colleagues sick. And that's having an effect at all of these different production facilities, these processing facilities. And it has a downstream effect on the supply chain and even the animals who are caught up in this. I'm a vegetarian and I have a lot of assumptions around how meat is made anyway. And so I was glad to have Jesse come on the show and talk about whether or not the individuals who butcher animals or who work on the line are truly victims. Are they low paid? Are they working in these terrible environments? And moreover, I had questions around how meat is actually made. What's the myth? What's the reality? I'm not a journalist, I'm not a member of PETA, and I wanted to respectfully know how is meat made? And I think you're gonna love this conversation because you're gonna see how your decisions in the grocery store affect a global industry. So if you have questions around why meat is suddenly so expensive right now and what's happening to chickens and pigs on farms, well, I think you're gonna enjoy this conversation with Jesse McCoy. Hey, Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, my goodness. This has been a long time coming. Before we talk about, you know, who you are and what you do and how all that is so important to what's going on in the world, maybe we should tell people how we met. Well, officially, we still haven't, which is hilarious <laughs> to me. Right. But yeah, I think it was a random tweet a long, long time ago about how much I like Cerdix in the Minneapolis airport. There you go. Well, it's because you are a cynical traveler and that was your and is your Twitter handle. And I was the cynical girl and you would kind of come up when I would search for my own tweets because I'm a narcissist, you know, (laughs) and the fact that you were traveling as much as I was traveling was amazing. And we just kind of got to talking. And over the years, we've developed a friendship based on how crazy life on the road is because you are truly a road warrior. Not in miles, but in segments. Yes. Uh, That person (laughs) that gets upgraded before you and you really want to know why it's because in the algorithm segments count more than miles. Only a road warrior would know that. (laughs) That's right. Everybody else on this that doesn't travel like we do is going to be like, why does that matter? And meanwhile, all the people that do are going to say, I hate guys like you that fly 250 mile segments and get 500 miles in your account. Yeah, but you're racking it up and you are also getting the cush seat. And you're not only getting upgraded, you're probably not getting that last minute bulkhead upgrade, which barely counts as an upgrade. Row one is not an upgrade. No, but if you ever see a guy wearing Carhartt in first class, that's me. There you go. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks for coming on the show. You know, when you told me what you do for a living, you're like, biosecurity, it's literally all we do. So can you tell me about that? What do you do for a living and what is biosecurity? So my specialty is food animals. 
I deal with food animals and make sure they do not get sick so that they in turn do not get you sick. And then we can increase the efficiencies in the production of that food animal to make things cheaper. Most people feel like we're pumping animals full of steroids and antibiotics and all that. And I can tell you unequivocally that does not happen. It does not happen because that is exactly what I keep from happening. (laughs) Good. And my company makes the tests for antibiotic residues and we make the different chemicals to make sure that things don't get onto farms. And so biosecurity is the practice of keeping disease away from a host. And so for disease to happen, it's a contact sport. You have to have a viable pathogen. So that's the agent that causes the disease. And you have to have a viable host. And that's the thing that gets the disease. And so if we can keep those two things from meeting, then you never have a disease. Yeah. Well, it's just that easy, isn't it? (laughs) Sounds really great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think now your expertise is in demand more than ever. And we got a chance to start chatting the other day because I'm like, hey, dude, is our meat market collapsing? And you were like, Let's reframe the discussion and talk about the intersection of labor and food production. So maybe we can start there because labor and food production are kind of corporatized right now. So what should we know and how does cheap labor and the corporatization of farming affect some of what's happening in the world? You know, it's really interesting. I'm glad that we're doing this discussion today because of an executive order that came out yesterday, the Defense Production Act. Two days ago, Just about every pork processor was not processing animals. And they were doing that not because there weren't enough animals, not because there wasn't a demand for those animals, but because there were not people willing to come to the processing plant and do the processing of that animal. And so how that has intersected is in the past... 2014 was the last time we were at these processing numbers that we're at now, and they're extremely low. In 2014, the reason that the processing numbers were so low is we had a rampant disease in the swine industry. It happened to be a coronavirus that originated in China. And so now we have the animals, we build our production back up to get to the numbers to meet demand in the world because America is the leading protein production country. We very much rely on exports and and other people rely on our meat to eat. But now we don't have people there to do the processing. And so we have this glut of animals that are ready to go to the market but we don't have the people to actually process them in the market. And it's something new that hasn't happened. So I had this discussion with my buddy the other day about, you know, is the weak link of food production people? And it was a New York Times article. And we talked about the history of, well, sometimes it's the production parameters, sometimes it's demand from the consumer. And now this time, it's actual people working on the processing line. And so I think it really highlights that the food chain and the food system is really a chain. And if one of those links get weak, everything changes. Well, can we talk about what it's like within the confines of the production facilities? Because what the news portrays is an environment that is relentless. It's 24-7. People work 
in pretty cramped quarters, and oftentimes they're low-wage earners or maybe migrants or illegal immigrants. And the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, is going through these plants in places like Iowa or Green Bay and getting a ton of people sick. And if you're not sick, there's been some fear about going back into that environment. Or if you have been sick, you're worried about whether or not you really do have immunity with the antibodies. So what is it like inside and what's happening with people there? Okay. I'm really happy with how you phrased this question and I'm going to break it down into pieces. So a food production plant doesn't exist, but a food processing plant does. The production happens on family farms. I know everybody wants to talk about factory farm this, factory farm that. And Tyson has been in the news, so I'll use them. Okay, John Tyson, the CEO of Tyson Foods, does not own a pig. He doesn't own a chicken. The Tysons of the world have contracts with family farms to supply them with meat. And so the producers, and that's how we would describe them in the industry, the producers are the farmers. A food processing plant is owned by a company, and that's where you get the marketing behind it. So the label on your meat doesn't mean that farm has animals that are owned by that company at it. That's that's not right. The label on the meat is the marketing contract that a farmer has with the processor. Can I ask a clarifying question on that? So when you say that there are family farms, a family farm to me is like a guy out in Hillsborough, North Carolina with a bunch of meat chickens and maybe some pigs and he's selling eggs. But a family farm today can mean somebody who has 40,000 pigs out in the counties of North Carolina or a million ch- or however many chickens, right? Family farm is a pretty big term, is it not? Yes, but your family farm that has some meat chickens and some eggs and some pigs, like the person that owns, let's say, four chicken houses in North Carolina where you are, you go by, you see four chicken houses. That's 100,000 chickens that one family works. Traditionally, it is a corporation that is staffed by the family. I mean, I grew up checking chickens with my friends. We didn't own any animals, but everybody I knew did. And so in the mornings before you went to school, you'd go check chickens with your dad. And then, you know, you'd go to school and your dad would do either the rest of the maintenance on the barn and make sure everything was running correctly, or they would go to a second job. And then in the evenings, you came back from school, you'd check the chickens again. And when your parents came home from work, they would check the chickens again and make sure everything was okay for the night. It still is run by a family unit. We've just gotten so good at efficiencies that we can now have one family take care of 100,000 chickens at a time, whether that's through automation improvements in the barn or whatever. But they are still tied to families. You know, your guy with 40,000 hogs in Iowa, and he exists, I know him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like he's working it. And the reason he got bigger is because his kids got old enough to join and they had families. And so you go to a farm in Iowa and everybody's related. And if they're not, it's their friends. They have employees. They're small businesses between 10 and 30 employees. Everything's still run like a family. They just had to get bigger because food is so cheap that if they wanted to keep from getting merged with another large family farm, they had to expand. 
So can I ask you a question about the difference between a family farm and a CAFO? Because what I'm hearing essentially is that there may be no difference, right? A concentrated... There is no difference. Good. Okay. So to define that, can you tell everybody what a CAFO is maybe? A CAFO is a confined animal feeding operation, and it is determined solely based on the number of animals at the operation, not who owns it, not who runs it. Interesting. Okay. So you've got producers that are generally families who are operating these corporations and they're selling their meat or they've contracted their animals to a processor. A processor. To a processor. Yes. They typically hold a processing contract and then that contract tells them what slot those animals should go into. So by slot, I mean what size they should be, what breed they should be. Like Chick-fil-A has their own specific breed of chicken and it is made very specifically for them. It is different genetically from the chicken that you buy at your grocery store because Chick-fil-A sells chicken sandwiches and at the grocery store you buy a piece of chicken to put on your grill. While those two are genetically different, they are not genetically engineered to be different. We do different husbandry, so crossbreeding of different breeds of chickens to get the type of chicken we want to have them express the genes that we want so that every Chick-fil-A chicken looks the exact same. And that makes things more efficient, which is why your Chick-fil-A sandwich is $4 instead of 14. I'm glad you talk about the genetics behind it because I think that's also just like the antibiotic myth. There's a genetic myth that somebody's out there creating Franken chickens for Chick-fil-A. I'm glad to know this. And same thing with cows, right? Because I worked for Monsanto for many years and they were getting... <gasps> you said it out loud? I did. <laughs> and they were getting a treatment to produce more milk. But I think there's a misunderstanding around that as well. Yes. So chickens and pigs and cows are all treated differently. So cows sometimes will get a hormone to produce more milk that has been studied and shown to create no difference in the milk when you get it on the shelf. Whether you choose to buy that milk or not is totally up to you, right? So consumer choice with food in America is amazing compared to many other places. The irony that I see with people that have talked about Franken-chickens and things like that is that typically the same people that say they don't want a Franken-chicken are the people that are driving the industry to then find alternative sources for those meats. You know, you look at lab-grown meat and stuff like that. So in the past decade, the people that said they don't want Franken-chickens are literally driving the demand for actual Franken-chickens coming out of the laboratory. But I personally don't believe we will ever be more efficient than Mother Nature. And so food production will continue and animal food production will continue to exist for those people that choose to want it. But now we have greater consumer choice for those people that want a laboratory-grown protein source. And that's great, right? We've got diversification. But that laboratory-grown piece of protein still has to go through a processor and, in fact, has to go through two because instead of having a family farm with four people that see those actual chickens, now you have a laboratory with 100 people in it. 
that are potentially bringing in a hundred vectors and a vector is what brings a disease to the hosts. So now you have a hundred new vectors and then it still goes to the same type of processor with, you know, 500 people that are potential vectors for everybody else there. Dang, nature is just always trying to kill us, isn't it? (laughs) so, So here's the thing, like nature at this point, if you do traditional production, has fewer vectors for COVID-19. And I'm using COVID-19 as the example, but when people get involved is when we increase the likelihood of having a foodborne pathogen. Well, let's go back to my original question then and talk about what it's like inside these meat facilities. What is it like? I mean, what are the working conditions like? What are the people like? Do you know anything about it? Oh yeah, I've, I've worked in a plant. I'm proud to say that. I interned at a major poultry integrator, is what we call them, a major integrator for the bulk of my young adult life. Dang, that is one corporate term. (laughs) You like that? (laughs) I do. Instead of like, I worked at a place where they kill chickens. No, no. So we call it an integrator because they are fully integrated, okay? Which means (laughs) the company owns the hatchery that the baby chickens come from. They own the eggs that come into it. They own the feed mill that provides the feed and they own the processing plant that provides the actual labor behind making a whole chicken alive into a chicken that you buy at the grocery store. And they own the marketing rights. So start to finish, they're fully integrated, which is why it makes it really easy to call it a factory farm, right? But the farm is the piece they don't own, which is ironic. So they're called integrators. And working in a plant was fantastic. It's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And everybody kind of rolls their eyes when I say that. But what's been really great is everybody wants to know where their food comes from. And I do. And so I live in a city now. I grew up in the country. No surprise there. I live in Richmond, Virginia. And so now I interact with all these people that don't know what it's like. And so I constantly have these discussions, much to my wife's chagrin, because she's heard it a thousand times on where our food comes from and what it's like. So the way a processing plant works is you bring an animal in on a trailer. It goes into first processing. And that's where we humanely kill the animal. I don't know how else to say it than that. There's been a ton of work done and movies about it on HBO, if you want to watch the Temple Grandin documentary, about how we've studied these animals scientifically on what it's like to go through a processing plant. And so we do absolutely everything we can and have the science to back up that they have no idea what's going on and we make them comfortable. And so they go through first processing in a plant, and that's where they are killed. And depending on the animal, then feathers are taken off or they're not. Evisceration, which is the gutting process in the plant. And then you cool them down. And so everything while that animal is still warm is called first processing. And then you go into second processing. And so you chill that animal to make sure that you don't have pathogen growth, right? So everything in that plant is about making the food safe. So you chill that animal down. There are different ways to do that. If you go to a grocery store, you'll see some of them that say air chilled and things like that. And that makes you feel better about buying it. But at the end of the day, it just means it makes it cold. And so once it's cold, we butcher it, for lack of a better term, into the individual parts and pieces that are in demand from the consumer. So Jesse, these are all individual jobs though, right? This is not necessarily automation or is it automation that's... Well, you tell me. 
Yeah. There's some automation, and that's why it's very important that we have what's known as uniformity. That's why genetics are important, because you want everything going into that plant to essentially be the same size. So if you've got, let's say, a nine-pound chicken that's going to be probably the biggest you'll see on the grocery store shelf next to a three-and-a-half-pound chicken that's going to go to a fast-food restaurant, it's very difficult to automate that process. And so there is automation when it comes to the killing of the animal because we want to make sure that that always stays the same um, to be as humane as possible. There is automation on most evisceration lines. On the picking, which would be the de-feathering, typically that is automated. Where you get to more specialization is going to be in the second process. So where you're, let's say, taking the wings off of a chicken because somebody wants to buy chicken wings at a Buffalo Wild Wings and somebody wants to buy a chicken breast at their grocery store, that process is done with a machine, but the machine doesn't do it on its own. So someone takes that carcass and loads it into the machine and then it comes out and then people package them by hand into whatever you're buying it, whether it's a blister pack that you're buying at the grocery store or whether it's a bulk case that somebody at like a Buffalo Wild Wings would get. That still is done by hand and it's on a conveyor belt. And because we really like cheap food, we want to make it as efficient as possible, which means smallest footprint possible so people are in close proximity to each other. Well, I was going to ask, is that why everybody's getting sick? Because we're doing all kinds of remediation so that the animals stay healthy and they don't get us sick. But are we just in close quarters with one another and getting one another sick at work? Is that what's going on? That's what's going on. I would describe it as like a cafeteria in high school, right? You know, you sit next to the people you want to sit next to and talk to. Well, these people working in a processing plant have probably worked there 5, 10. I've known people working in a processing plant for 25 years. They want to stand next to their friends so that they can talk to their friends, right? And it's not a loud environment, but it's not quiet, right? So you are close to people and talking to them. And let's say the production line, if I'm on one side and you're on the other and we're putting chicken tenders into a box together, that conveyor belt that those chicken tenders are now coming down is probably two feet wide, three feet wide. So we're going to be within six feet of each other. Now that was until two weeks ago. So plants were ahead of the game and started, you know, if you've been to the grocery store, you see that clear piece of plastic between you and the checkout person that exists now in processing plants. So they have these social distancing efforts in place, but that also means I can no longer run that line at the same speed that I used to be able to. Tell me, are you sure that there are no low-wage workers or illegal immigrants staffing the local meatpacking plant near my house? So I'll answer that in in two phases. If you want to make $15 an hour, feel free to go to your local food processor. They'll pay you $15 an hour to show up. And depending on which job you have inside of that processor, like if you're hanging shackles, for example, like you take an animal and you put it on the shackle, they'll pay you an extra dollar an hour to show up that day. So those specialized jobs command more pay. And one of the problems in the Midwest right now, like if you're one of those specialized jobs, they'll give you 10 days extra PTO unannounced. So one of the things that's been an issue is I don't have to tell you I'm not coming to work today and you'll still pay me for it for up to 10 days in a row. I still don't have to tell you. The problem is, let's say there's six people that work the hanging shackles job. 
if we all get together and decide we're not coming in tomorrow because we're afraid of COVID-19 or we just want to go fishing together, that plant doesn't run that day because there are six people that can do that job. And maybe you get a supervisor that helps out. Maybe you get somebody from another spot that can do it too. First off, you're going to pay those new people the extra money for doing that job that day. But now you've got two instead of six people doing it, and they're not really good at it. So you're running at 15% capacity. The power that that the employee has at a processing plant is significantly different than what we've all heard, right? Everybody's read The Jungle, and if you haven't, read it. But it is not like that anymore, and it's because of things like The Jungle that it's not like that anymore. And as far as you know, illegal immigrants and things like that, the food industry and the processing industry leads the pack on sponsoring visas. They do e-verify. They do everything they can within the rules to make sure that they have workers that are allowed to be there working because no one wants to see on the front page of the newspaper, you know, so-and-so raided by Immigration Customs Enforcement and 30 people were arrested, right? Like we have learned our lesson as an industry to try to be proactive in that. Now, you know, you work in HR, there's some things you can ask and some things you can't. And if the documents match, then the documents match. But nobody's out there in a parking lot saying, hey, do you want to come to work? We're not going to look at your documents and we're just going to pay you cash. Like that doesn't exist. We're talking about billion dollar companies that trade on their brand. They're doing everything they can to protect it. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think there's also this story out there that some aspects within these facilities are not necessarily owned and controlled by the corporation itself. So they've outsourced like cleaning or they've outsourced the hosing down of floors, right? Or whatever. And I think those jobs are the ones that are generally affected by illegal immigrants. Like these third-party staffing companies will pull people from the community and pretend like the documents are good. That's where I've heard a lot of the abuse coming from. Maybe not like the leaders on the production floor, but the people who are outsourced through these vendors. Does that that make sense? (sighs) Yes, maybe. It's certainly easier to uh, skirt the rules there, but certainly the company that uses that vendor has in the contract that you have gone through the documentation and everybody that you've put in this facility is legal to work here. But that is not the company that is in the headline on the newspaper. But that contract certainly exists because no one can risk their brand. And there's too much competition in the food industry for people to risk their brand trying to cheat. Are there any other myths that you wanted to cover that we didn't cover? Like, I feel like there's so much to talk about and so much that I don't know and people don't know. Is there anything else we missed in that discussion around staffing and people? I mean, probably not, but I'm sure I take it for granted. <laughs> like. No, everybody would understand what this is, right? No, it's just, it's like any other company, right? I mean, you're just, you're walking into a refrigerator to try to keep things clean. Maybe the fact that the benefits in food processing plants are amazing. I don't know a food processing plant that doesn't have an LPN at the very least on staff where if you work there, you can go or you can bring anyone in your family to go see at any time and not get charged for it. So, yeah, I I don't know one that doesn't have an office when you walk in the door where there's someone that can do an evaluation, give you a physical, write you a prescription if you need, give you 
physical therapy for something, you know, carpal tunnel that you got at work or away from work. They do everything they can in the food industry to retain workers possible because it may sound like it's really easy to hang a chicken on a shackle. No, that doesn't sound easy at all. Are you kidding (laughs) me? You know, you would think that you could walk down the street and find 15 people looking for work to do it. But could you find 15 people looking for work willing to do it eight hours? Could you find 15 people willing to do it for four hours? Right? Because that's the other piece for somebody hanging shackles is they're going to get paid for an eight hour day. They probably do it for four to six. They're going to get an extra dollar an hour to show up. And, you know, they work until the job's done. So when you really look at dollars per hour, that job, it pays very well. And it comes with fantastic benefits. I mean, you might get 30 days of PTO at the end of a year working that job, but there's a reason, right? Like it's not easy. It takes a special person to do it. It's not clean and it's hard and heavy. And you've got, you know, you're dealing with a, with an animal, but they try very, very hard to retain employees. And that gives employees a lot of power. Well, that's such a good place to pause for a second, because when I asked you if there would be a run on bacon or other, you know, pieces of food, you said, go out and buy some bacon. <laughs> You're like, if go do it now. If you like bacon, go buy it now. It won't be cheaper for years. Wow. Even if every plant stayed open and we had all of the pigs that we could possibly provide those plants, because we've had to slow down the line speed, we're only going to get a certain percentage of production out of them. Now, the American food industry is very robust. Our supply is very robust. We have cold storage and you can go online and look all this up. It's really interesting, you know, how much is in cold storage. And and I looked it up after the South Dakota plant closure because everybody I knew said, oh, 5% of the pigs aren't going to get processed. What are we going to do? I'm like, there's 18,000 metric tons in cold storage. We're fine. Wow. And then two days later, another processing plant went down. And two days later, another processing plant went down. So now we're to the point where it's like, well... If you've got a freezer and you really like bacon, I would recommend you go buy it for two reasons, actually. Number one, so that you have bacon. Number two, so that companies like Tyson or Smithfield or whoever has that money to build better barriers. You know, one of my favorite people that we work with is a swine producer in Iowa. And he was on a podcast recently and they were talking about how he got his bailout money. You know, we sent $9 million to the swine industry. And he got $250,000 of that $9 million. Huh, That doesn't sound like a lot. They asked him on the podcast, how long does that keep you solvent? And he said about seven hours. Oh, my God. Because you don't think about everything that goes into this, right? Like they have to buy feed. They have to buy disinfectants, vaccines. They have to pay their people. Now we've got to make sure that their people have extra PPE. They have all these costs. But they need to have the money to implement them as well because it's a drop in the bucket compared to what it really takes to run a trillion dollar industry, which is the American food industry. So keeping them solvent by continuing to buy food is really important. And who you buy food from for the next month or two is going to really determine who stays in business and who doesn't. 
Well, I'm really fascinated about what's happening in the agricultural industry because it's not just animals, it's also veggies too, right? I mean, all of this supply chain is so interconnected. But one of the things that's keeping me up at night, I mean, besides plowing over fields and dumping milk, is this concept of animals being depopulated. So can you tell me what that really means and what's going on there? You know, you say that and I get like, I have chills and now I'm sad. It's heartbreaking. And so if you don't have place to put the animals, if your processor isn't going to take them, you know, force majeure, the contract's null and void, you've got, let's say you're a small farm, which means you have 4,000 pigs that are 275 to 300 pounds. For the past six months, you've put all your effort into them. Nobody's more optimistic in the world than a farmer, for the record, right? You plant a seed, you get a baby pig, you spend six months raising it, being optimistic by the time that it is time to process or pick that food, that you will have a market that wants it, someone to process it, and a price that will allow you to maybe make money. And now we've got six months of input into a product that can't be processed. And you have contracts you have to uphold if you're the American farmer. And I'm, I'm going to look at the pig farmer right now. They've got a year or two years worth of contracts with the people that they get their baby pigs from. So they've got baby pigs coming. If they break that contract with their baby pig supplier, then they just push all of that down to the baby pig person. Someone gets hurt, right? And so you've got 4,000 pigs that you don't have anything to do. So what do you do with those pigs? Because, you know, killing a pig when you don't, have the equipment, it's got to be a pretty terrible thing. But can you speak honestly to what these farmers are doing, what their choices are? If they have the room, they can try to change the feed ration to keep them a little bit longer. And so you take an animal that is, we often describe it in race car terms. So you take a Ferrari, right? It is made to do nothing but provide you with a specific type of meat that you really like. And we've spent decades and decades and decades of research on tweaking that ration nutritionally to make sure that it thrives. It reaches its genetic potential. Anybody that listens to this from my industry is clapping right now because I use the term genetic potential. But that's what we base ourselves off of. We have a standard of how good this animal can grow. And if we hit that standard, we know we're just as good as everybody else should be. And we call that achieving genetic potential. But now, if I've got the time, I can put you know regular gas in a Ferrari and I can slow it down. And so there's plenty of people out there doing that right now, just trying to hold on. But if I don't have the time, I got two cars and a one-car garage. And there doesn't look like there's ever going to be a time where I can sell that Ferrari. So we have to euthanize it. It's just, can you imagine putting six months worth of work into something and, and knowing that there's value and now the value that it has is becoming fertilizer? I see all these things like pigs are headed to landfills. They're not headed to landfills. Yeah, where are they going? We absolutely believe in using everything we can, right? So maybe you can find a pet food plant that's still open. They're dealing with the same issues, but maybe you can find a pet food plant. So animal food, you know, pet food for the next six months or a year is going to be amazing for your animals. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. If you're lucky enough to be in a community where people still know how to process their own meat, you can probably find a couple of buddies that'll come by with a pickup truck and take a, one or two of them off your hands, right? But if you've got 4,000 and you know 100 people, you still have 3,800 of them left. 
And so we have rules and regulations, again, based on science on how to humanely euthanize animals. A lot of people would use carbon dioxide. They go to sleep and then they die. They're calling in the National Guard in certain states to help out just with manpower to make that happen. And then we're either turning them into fertilizer or turn them into pet food or something along those lines, but they're not going into landfills. And it's people, I mean, to me, it hits a little bit different, right? Because I know these people and they're family farms, right? That load of pigs, you know, we're coming into people graduating from high school and things like that. Like that load of pigs was somebody's college fund and it's not there. And they didn't apply for scholarships because they wouldn't have qualified and they didn't think they needed it. And everything was fine three months ago. And now you're looking at people that are having a hard conversation with their kids saying, I'm sorry, you can't go to college. I'm sorry. This farm's been in our family for 10 generations, or especially in the Midwest, your great-great-grandfather homesteaded this land, building pig farms on it allowed us to to make sure we didn't have to sell it to whomever to be a giant row crop field, farms for sale. You know, Jesse, as we wrap up this conversation, I've been thinking about how disconnected Americans are from their food. And how the American consumer herself is busy at her corporate job, working a million hours a day, doing the best she can, running to the grocery store, buying food, maybe going and getting fast food a couple times a week. And I just think we're in this cycle of consumption and we don't dig any deeper. So for my listeners out there, for the people in the community who love this podcast, what do you want them to know about food and what can they do right now to be good citizens, good consumers and good advocates for farms? There's a couple things. First, nobody cares more about doing this right than the farmer. Nobody, right? One of the things that I constantly deal with is you're not telling me the truth. You work for the industry. There are plenty of people right now listening to this thinking that I'm just full of it, right? And it's just not true. Like nobody cares more about this industry than the people that work in it. Farmers care. The people in the industry care. And it's tough because I feel like the squeakiest wheels, you know, often get the grease, right? And so you've got people that just try to shout down somebody that doesn't want to deal with talking to other people, right? Most farmers are farmers because they want to be their own boss and they don't have to talk to other people, right? I mean, the reason that I do this in agriculture instead of the human health side is because I don't want to talk to people. I want to go in and talk to animals. They have much better conversations. But the give a darn factor is there. And the other piece would be, we used to be connected. Two generations ago, I think it goes, you know, half of the people in the US knew somebody or related to somebody that worked in the food system. And now it's 2%. And so we have this disconnect. And so I would just encourage you to seek someone out and talk to them. They'll talk to you. I mean, I talk to anybody. There's plenty of people that are on airplanes that have sat next to me and asked what I did. And after they kind of turned their nose up for a little bit, got really interested in the food industry. And so, you know, have that conversation. I don't know anybody that works in the food industry that wouldn't be happy to have an honest conversation with you. But you got to be open-minded, right? You can't come at it as, as farmers are the worst people on the planet because you read this or that, right? Just talk to them and get their experience. But I think it's been cool to see this turn in society as a whole where everybody is really interested in their food now. And so there's never been a better opportunity to talk to somebody about where your food comes from and how you spend your dollar 
because how you spend your dollar in the food industry will determine the way the food industry goes. Jesse, you have modeled the right behaviors and thank you for being so open to having this conversation and being a guest on a random HR and business podcast. We learned a lot today. I learned a lot today and I'm so grateful that we're connected. No, thank you so much. You know, I've been the guy that listens to your podcast and I appreciate everything you provide. So I was really excited when you reached out to me and I just look forward to what else comes next. Well, Jesse, I also hope that you and your family stay safe and that you're not on an airplane anytime soon. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jesse McCoy. Now, you may have questions still around the meat industry. I know I did. And I would encourage you to go to lauriruderman.com forward slash punkrockhr-107. Connect with Jesse on LinkedIn and ask him anything you want to ask him. He's truly an open book. And make sure you keep an eye out for him when the planes start to fly again. But don't look for him in coach because he's only flying first class. This week's Punk Rock HR was produced by Danny Osmond and his team at Emerald City Production. If you like what you hear, you have any feedback for us, you can always reach us on the internet. Just Google Punk Rock HR and you're going to find us. Now that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR. Punk Rock HR.